Welcome to the Exponential Minds Podcast. The research, development, launch, and growth of new technologies is creating incredible momentum in the modern world. Join futurist Nicholas Badminton as he talks with the innovators and the exponential minds that are tackling some of the biggest problems and creating solutions that are propelling humanity to the next level. Hello and welcome to the Exponential Minds podcast. I'm Nicholas Badminton, I'm a futurist that travels around the world, speaking to many clients about planning for positive futures. And today I'm talking with one of the original futurists out there, Glenn Heemstra. So uh, Glenn's an internationally respected expert on future trends, long-range planning, and creating the preferred future. Glenn he has advised professional business and governmental organizations and served as a technical advisor for futuristic television programs as well. So the world is interesting. And uh, today, we, we were just talking before we started recording, there's lots of people out there you know, that hang futurists onto their job titles. And, and now, if we look back, when you started out over 40 years ago, it wasn't that that commonplace. You know, you, you had some of the people out there like Alvin Toffler. I imagine Ray Kurzweil was out there, but maybe not calling himself a futurist. But what really turned you uh, into looking towards the future and becoming a futurist? Yeah, my, my story is, is really simple, actually. So uh, I'm a... I'm a young middle of middle school high school student in the 1960s space program catches my imagination i go to college in a uh, a liberal arts college in spokane washington uh, i'm a college student there when they hire as a new president uh, a guy who comes straight to the college from the apollo spacecraft program where he was director of program planning and he gets up in front of his first college convocation and he says i'm a futurist <laughs> 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 and uh, his name was Ed Lindemann. Uh, he had worked for the Rockwell Company, where, which built the uh, the craft that went to the moon. Uh, and uh, he was a founding member of the World Future Society, which had started up right there around 1970 or so. So I'm young. Um, I had become acquainted with him. I'm involved in student government. Uh, so I hang out with the president some of the college. And, and he becomes kind of a mentor. And he starts doing a uh, futurist thing and bringing future speakers. He brings Alvin Toffler to the campus. He brings Robert Theobald to the campus, uh, asks that everybody in the campus read Future Shock when Future Shock was new. Uh, and so it just it kind of captured my imagination. Long story short, I, I went off to graduate school to be a, a professor of communications. Uh, went to the University of Washington in the 1980s to work on a PhD in communication. Uh, this Lindemann guy says, well, the first guy to go meet at the University of Washington is, a, is another Ed named Ed Wenk. And Ed was the first science advisor to the U.S. Congress, wrote the legislation that created the, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association uh, Administration, I mean. And he becomes a Ph.D. advisor. Um, and then in the middle of all that, this Ed Lindemann guy uh, dies on a trip to China uh, very suddenly. And he has, he's retired as a college president. He has a full speaking slate. His wife, now widow, calls me and says, I know you're in graduate school. Uh, Ed had a full speaking slate. Would you like me to give them your name? Wow. Maybe some of them will want you. And a half a dozen said, yeah, we, we got to have somebody. Let's have this guy. And so I begin making my first presentations sort of as a futurist while completing my, my graduate work. 
then, then I go off and, and I'm a college professor for three or four more years and start consulting on the side. And, and my bio says two decades, but it was really about 1990 that I, right. that I gave up a college teaching gig. So it's actually been three decades now, full-time uh, futures work. And, and so, that, you know, so it was, a, it was a mentor relationship, sort of a long-time personal interest in the future, then a mentor, then this sort of weird opportunity to, to go out and do some speaking in front of large audiences who otherwise would never have hired me but because uh, they needed somebody and, and, th and this guy was no longer around. Uh, it kind of gave me a, um, a, a foot in the door, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and then um, uh, by, by 19, you know, my last college teaching job, I was in a whole, it was an assistance design program, studied systems theory, taught some future studies. And so, you know, I really felt ready to, to go out and be a full-time consultant starting about 1990. And, and that's what I did. That's super interesting as well. What, what did it feel like? Because you must have been in your mid twenties when you started doing talks about the future. Right? It was yeah, it was just yeah, it was yeah, and and it was it was fascinating. You know, I was borrowing a lot of material for him. I, I this this is a, a great story. I've got to, I, I I might get to writing this blog today. Uh, if not by the end of next week, I'll get it done. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about writing a memoir. Right. Because okay? because and I thought you know I have a file box somewhere of old speech notes. And I used to do these sort of these sort of outlines on paper that I would then use to do my speeches. This was this was obviously pre PowerPoint days and and all of that. And sure enough, I found the box, and there are the notes from my very first speech as a futurist in 1980. Yeah, uh, it's about a five page outline, and I got to got to write about that. And um, and there are two things that I really notice about it. Number one, um, the, the fundamental approach that I had taken from this mentor, which is all about asking these three questions about the future, what's probable, what's possible, what's preferred, what was there already. Uh, and number two, you know, it's both, um, well, I don't know if it's discouraging or encouraging or just a simple observation to say some of the issues that we were talking about in 1980 are the same issues that we talk about in 2020, 40 years later. Wow. Yeah. You know, uh, environmental issues, uh, the impact of technology on the future of work and jobs and so on. Um, the themes uh, are, it's, it's pretty amazing to, to see how some things seem to change very fast and other things seems to change virtually not at all in even in 40 years. Yeah. And we have buckets of those things that we're concerned about, right? And it's, yeah. we're just yeah. watching them. And I mean, back in the 80s, uh, there was a lot of, yeah, information moved less quickly, right? As soon right. as we hit right. the mid nineties, the the internet pops up. By yeah. the early two thousands, yeah. it's going a million miles an hour, and and suddenly information's everywhere, and and everyone's saying the world's worse than it's ever been, and this and that, and it's like, well, actually, no, information's just just democratized. It's more widely available, yeah. and now we've got this world of misinformation and so-called fake news and. And, and all the social media platforms yeah. are accelerating yeah. everything, right? And, and suddenly yeah. there's catastrophe everywhere from the coronavirus to climate to, to whatever. But again, all my clients literally ask about those three things and then can I come and speak about them with you? So, mm -hmm. so, so it's really interesting when we look at those probable, possible and preferred futures. I mean, if you look at Alvin Toffler, in, in maybe you look at some of the work that like Buckminster Fuller did back in the day. Yep. This was really visionary stuff. And I remember reading a book called The Osborne Book of the Future. 
Uh, and it was like in the 70s, late 70s, mm-hmm. not about mm-hmm. eight years old. And you may remember the book. And it was, you know, Raytheon and Boeing and, uh, yeah. and NASA. And you had Arthur C. Clarke and a number of people, you know, fed into it. And it was wildly fantastical. And we, we, we've almost, we, we're not so fantastical, I think, in 2020 anymore because... I think that I think that's right. Yeah, I, I remember uh, one one of the people I read at that time was a guy named Gerard O'Neill, who was a, a, a physics professor or something at one of the Ivy Leagues, and um, he was writing about you know space colonization and building giant wheels in space and and mass drivers to space and and building um, kind of he, he had this vision of, of of the hyperloop before everybody called it the hyperloop, building these massive tunnels all around North America and shooting you know shooting trains at 500 miles an hour through these things. And I thought, this is just really amazing. One of the things that, that, that I think is true is that if you look at the futurists, the people we now call futurists, although many of them called themselves futurists in the 1970s, that's when the academic programs began right. at, at the various universities. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but most of those, most of those people had come out of other fields, of course, uh, and began calling themselves futurists, but they had also, they were sort of that post-World War II generation that, that had this massive optimism coming out of that whole experience um, and, and surviving it. Uh, and, then, and then seeing the, the technologies that came out of there from, you know, that became popular at the time, uh, to tele, from television to jet airplanes and so on. Uh, and feeling like we could probably do just about anything right. uh, that we wanted, wanted to do. And so you could call it na- naive, uh, and, and it was generally speaking before there was concern about global warming, there was concern about the environment. I mean, Earth Day was started in 1971 or 72, somewhere around there. So there was certainly deep concern about uh, polluting the environment, but not really about overheating the planet. And so there was a naivete about that. But mostly they, they, they believe that if, if we collectively decided to do something, we could probably do it. Uh, and that's, that's been lost. I, I think it's, in my opinion, um, it's a shame that that's, that's lost. I think it, 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 is, it is helpful to be more realistic and to be aware uh, of the massive threat that, uh, let's say, that you know, 8 billion people uh, can pose to the planet uh, unless we work in, in really, really smart ways. But you go back to Buckminster Fuller, who was a hero, and who I got to see do one big seminar at the World Future Society in, in 1980 or 82, I think it was. Uh, my very first time I ever went to those meetings uh, and he was doing one of his Dymaxian workshops in which he had all these people, in this massive room kind of imagine remaking the planet. And, nice. but, but, but his whole theme was, you know, if, if we would agree to, to shift from, as his language was shift from weaponry to livingry uh, instead of putting all our resources into war and uh, put all of our resources into peaceful activities we could do, you know, he used to say, you know, everybody in the planet could live like a millionaire. Um, that's been that, that's been lost. It's very hard to find futurists today who would say those kinds of things out loud and not be ridiculed for saying them. Right. I mean, you had uh, Jack, you had Jack Fresco and, and the Venus Project. I think Jack Fresco yes. passed away in yeah. the past few years, like really recently. And his ideas, and they are they, they, that we've kind of lost that fantastical nature. And yeah, if, if suddenly we get brought in, and I, you know, I, I've started to uh, tell stories now. I was at a, a conference in Iowa speaking to 900 people that do land investment, mm-hmm. agriculture, whatever. 
And I finished off with a story of the global world of agriculture in 2220. And, yeah. and it's really interesting because you can be fantastical. And I spoke about the end of the energy wars. And then 50 years after that, all wars entirely were gone. And global networks of, of, of what is true abundance, not, not what abundance is called in 20, 2020, yeah. which yeah. is like... Yeah a bunch of billionaires talking about, you know, stem cell therapy and, and living to yeah. then 120 years old, right? Uh -huh. but, uh -huh. So it, it, it's kind of interesting that, you know, I've started bringing that practice back, but, you know, you almost look out of the audience and they're like, what do we do with this information? And, and then it's interesting following on speaking, working with people. And I, I think that... Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, 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 you, that I've seen that you're doing and, and, and what you just described in that, that Iowa presentation is be willing to go very far into the future. To, to begin with an assumption that, that it's possible, at least, if not probable, yeah. uh, that human beings will be around in 200 years or uh, 500 years or 1,000 years or, or a million years. Uh, and that's kind of rare right now. You know? Of course, organizations who call you, they say, well, you know, come and help us think about the next three to five years. And I try to convince them to, to at least think of a couple decades ahead. Right. But, but you, you, by, by thinking centuries ahead, of course, you give yourself permission to do two things. Number one, to be fantastical, but also then to be, it frees people up to think kind of in, in inspiring ways. Yeah. In, in an inspirational way about, about the future. Um, one, of the, one of the great projects, uh, yesterday I got a, a call from a uh, publication, did an interview with a journalist. Yeah. Um, uh, and there is a, a so-called futurist. I don't, I've never really thought of him as a futurist. His name is Ist, uh, Zoltan Istvan. Yeah. He's, he, but he, and he really presents himself more as a uh, transhumanist. That's right. Yeah. And, he's, and it turns out he's running for president. I didn't know this. Yeah, he did it. He did it last time. He did it in 2016. And he did, did it in 2016. But his platform is basically national governments, namely the U.S. national government, should invest more in science research for immortality, so anti-aging research. Right. Okay, that's kind of cool, uh, that's fine. Um, but I, what I told the reporter was, and he, he wanted to know what I thought of whether futurists could have an impact on national politics by running for president. Well, I said, it turns out I, I was the, uh, the Washington State campaign coordinator for uh, a futurist named Barbara Marks Hubbard, okay. who was an early uh, visionary futurist very involved in the World Future Society work, work in the in the 70s and 80s and 90s, um, and she ran for vice president in 1984. Right. Uh, and, um, and and she did a campaign, and you know, the campaign was she called it the campaign for a positive future. Yeah. And her it was it was this it was it was an odd thing. I can send you the link to to her her 10 minute speech to the convention in 1984. But her platform was very simple. The president of the United States has something called the war room where he manages wars mm. and conflict. And she said the vice president should have something called the peace room where they keep track of all the breakthroughs and all the opportunities that are emerging all around the world uh, and use those, leverage those opportunities and breakthroughs, technology, technological breakthroughs, uh, social policy breakthroughs and so on uh, to build a positive future. And, and, I, and I watched that speech before this interview yesterday, this 10-minute speech, the 1984 convention by Barbara Hubbard, and I thought nobody talks like that right now. It's very rare to, to hear somebody say, well, you know, 
the evolution of humanity, the evolution of the species requires us to be, to build a positive future. And here are the things that we should be doing. We should, you know, be shifting to new kinds of energy and we should be ending um, in order to, to begin to uh, decrease our impact on global warming and eventually reverse global warming. And we should be shifting from weapons to, to uh, instruments of peace and we should be developing new forms of energy. It's just, it's pretty rare to hear people uh, do that. And it was, it was very cool. Um, I would like to see more of it. If, if I uh, do anything here in the next few years, uh, uh, as I wrap up my career, let's say as, as a futurist, that, that's kind of my intention is to see if I can bring a little bit of that back as, as you've uh, said that you were doing in, in Iowa. Yeah, it's kind of interesting as well. Uh, you sort of talk about Barbara Marks Hubbard and that campaign for the positive future. VP has the peace room. It's like, what about, what was Al Gore doing? You know, when he was, when he was Clinton, and then what did he go on to do? When, when, cause he, he couldn't have been, he couldn't have done what he's doing now if he would have ended up being president of the United States, not in the same sort of activistic, you know, fantastical visionary way, you know, he, there's no way that he could have done it. No, no, I, I, I never um, got to ask Al, Al Gore this. I just met him once. It turned out my, I have a daughter who was, uh, did an internship in Washington DC in, in the white house. And she was assigned to work on the, in the domestic policy office for Al Gore when Al Gore was vice president. That was her, her assignment that academic year. Um, and she loved him. And, uh, and I should have thought at the time of having her ask this question, whether he ever heard about that Harvard campaign, because he did try to turn the vice presidency into something of a futures office, you know, a, a, lo a, a locus of thinking about how to do things better uh, in, in the future. Uh, of course, uh, you know, the vice president who followed him, Dick Cheney, then reversed that completely and made it again a sort of a, a, a war-centered kind of thing. But um, yeah, Al, Al, Al Gore probably made the best stab at, at leveraging high office as a way of thinking in positive ways about how to, how to build the future. It's interesting. When I work with the United Nations and I'm, I'm, I'm working with them ongoing uh, around you know, the climate change uh, framework, yeah. Paris Agreement and whatever, and I'm sort of on the periphery helping them think about designs and you know, resilient futures and whatever, it's almost like we need these organizations to wrap themselves around governments to really push and apply pressure, right? And to, to really feed that, that information in. I mean, we've got a Andrew Yang, right? I mean, he's been very progressive. Yeah. And there's, there's a number of other people on the flip side in the Republicans, there's one guy and he's, he, he's literally turning everything back, you know, everything that um, yeah. the yeah. Obama administration put in place and, and whatever. And that's a, that's a, that's a big conversation there. But, but really, you know, we work with companies, but we're really just small parts of the puzzle and really, you know, positive futures can only be shaped once, you know, some argue once policy and, and money is put in place to support it, right? But then we've got like a $2 trillion budget for the military in the US. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my, my, uh, when people ask me these days, what, what are the, the major trends that I see shaping the future? What should we be paying attention to, let's say, as futurists? Uh, I think the, the number one um, uh, even dominant trend right now is the the emergence worldwide of this sort of reactive uh, nationalistic um, retro uh, view of how the world should work, that we should retreat into our nations and that we should strengthen our borders and keep everybody else out and 
go back to tariffs and, and you know, all, all the things everybody's familiar with, with what's happening. And it's not just in the U.S. It's it's in uh, it's in Turkey and it's in, you know, it's in countries all around the world yeah. trying to figure out why that is. And unless that unless that trend is reversed, if that trend becomes the dominant trend, then it's very hard to do anything about. You know, we're not going to do anything about climate change. Well, we're not going to do anything about, about shifting to, to more positive futures, um, in, in my opinion, unless that is confronted and dealt with. And we'll see. I mean, uh, the, the next, uh, we've advocated, you and I, just, just now for thinking very long term about the future. But it, it could be that the next half dozen years, the next in the U.S., next couple of election cycles will be really critical in figuring out whether that is, in fact, a new kind of dominant trend that's going to go on for a long period of time or whether that's one that that will is a blip on the radar and and, and will be reversed so, you know we, yeah. we see it in brexit brexit is the other example of that going on yeah i mean brexit i mean i'm a brit and i'm i'm a, I'm a, Can- I'm a proud canadian as well and yeah I'm, yeah in toronto and uh i look back to the uk and it's like you know what this is this is this is a it's a hangover from thatcherite britain uh you know I, I voted Tony Blair when he came in, New Labour. And New Labour was literally, like, eventually became New Conservatives, you know. And then yeah, the, yeah, well, that, was a, that was a surprise, yeah. Yeah, and then it was like, okay, so we're going to work this out. And uh, charismatic leaders like Tony Blair, like Barack Obama and whatever, like yeah. really, really smart people can really like, help shape it and, and do positive things. I mean... I still don't think we can like forgive any any administration for making Iraq happen. That was one of the most uh, you know, yeah. biggest mistakes yeah, was, that there was based on no information. But like, it, it just seems to go in cycles. You know, the 1950s. You know, there's a you know there's a, a lot of problems. You know, cross culturally um, around race and different cities and violence. And I think it, it turned up again in the 80s. So that's 30 years later. And then from the 80s to the 2010s, oh, surprise, in 30-year cycles. So maybe this is just what happens every 30 years. For some reason, we've got well, yes, yeah, yeah. cementing themselves in this, this, this power in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it could be part of generational cycles, all la Levi Strauss and, and, and that whole thinking that, that it has to do with with different generations and sort of what the theme for that generation is. And, and that, that whole process has that kind of, I think it's a 40 year cycle or maybe it's a 30 year. Uh, I've also thought it, it related to that. It could be related to that, but it might be slightly different is it, it might just be a, a, a kind of a cultural forgetting kind of cycle that, you know, you, you deal with something then the generation has sort of dealt with it. It sort of it literally passes away in the case of the, the post-World War II generation or the World War II generation. Yeah. And everybody forgets what it, what it was like to, uh, to live in an ultra-nationalist time where, you know, and, and, the, and the thought of conflict between nations stops being scary and starts being kind of romantic and think, well, that'd be kind of fun to have a war. Wouldn't that be exciting? Uh, and, and I wonder if there's a little bit of that as, you know, next Monday is the, uh, 75th, I think, uh, anniversary of the of the liberation of the Auschwitz uh, camp in, in Germany, and it's it's bizarre to think that it's only 75 years ago that 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 happened. But everybody who you know, everybody who was who was there in person, you know, the last ones are in their late 90s. That's right. So soon, everybody who was there will will be gone, and then everybody sort of forgets uh, what that was like. So you have a rise, a new rise of anti-Semitism around the world. 
and people don't remember how people literally don't remember how horrible that was. So that, that cycle might just literally have to do with this weird part of, of human memory that, that unless we were there personally, we just don't quite remember. And we had this tend tendency to romanticize things. I mean, you and I are just romanticizing positive futures. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe it's all part of the, the same phenomenon. Yeah. Um, in, in some ways. Yeah. It, it's, it's so interesting to me that, you know, we, you know, you've got the liberals that are like fighting all the you know, left leaning people. And I, I talk about, you know, liberal dictatorships. It, it's, yeah. it's the same kind of thing. I wrote, a, I wrote an article recently about fighting personal dictatorships. You know, can you sit down with a right wing, you know, nationalistic to, to a point that there's been violence or activism and, and, and misinformation and propaganda? Can you sit with them and can you argue and discuss and really start to liberate both of your thoughts about understanding the trauma that came before the position and, and whatever. And I, I grew up with, I grew up with kids that literally got turned in the 1980s in Thatcherite Britain by, you know, these big brothers that turned up and they were skinheads and suddenly these kids, you know, these, these young men, like 16, 18 years old, they suddenly had a family and it was a scooter gang and it was the national front. And there was this, you, you sit there and you fight against them and you talk to them and, and compassion and it is very hard to muster up in the face of, of, of these individuals. And because you almost have to teach them what compassion is before you can have those conversations. Right? Well, yeah. And I've been reading a couple of things just in the last couple of days, kind of on that theory that the best way to, uh, to reach people who are thinking in a completely opposite way from you are to sit down and ask them questions and try to understand their viewpoint. It's, you know, there's nothing earth shaking about that perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when Peter Senge was writing about company vision and his argument was that the best way to, uh, to communicate a vision in your company, your organization, if as a visionary leader is not to tell people what your vision is, but to ask people what their vision is and then look for a way of bringing them along. Um, but so, but I but I'm, I'm reading these things, but the, the difference today, and you alluded to this early in our conversation is social media mm. and internet and so on. The, um, the the reinforcing that goes on, no matter what your perspective is. I mean, I, you know, I have my Twitter feed and I curate that Twitter feed pretty hard. So that is mostly things that I, almost, almost all things that I agree with that make me feel good about my own perspectives and so on. And I'm a very open-minded person in general yeah. uh, and even and talk about the need to be open-minded. Um, but, but you think about all that reinforcing that, that, that's going on uh, now compared to, as, as you said, in the, before the early 1990s when the internet really became a thing, um, I, I think it's much harder to have that kind of mind-changing conversation. And so it's, it's more talking past each other. It makes me, it does make me concerned about how, how we get through this uh, sort of hyper-polarized era that we're in. It's, it could be more than just another cycle. Mm. Uh, because, you know, um, you know, national governments, national intelligence agencies, and so on are weaponizing all of this kind of thing. Over the uh, last, and it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. Over the last couple of decades, I want to ask you this. Have you seen the makeup of your clients changing? You know, different industries, you know, were prevalent in the 80s and 90s, and now in the 2000s, it's a different kind of industry. Yes, uh, there are two, two, two things. Number one, um, the 90s was, you know, when I started doing this full-time in the 90s, uh, everybody wanted a vision for the 21st century. 
Right. So it's actually a, a really good time to, to, to work as a, as a futurist consultant. And my, and my work is consisted basically of two things. There's the, there's the public speaking side. So conference uh, and convention, keynotes, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the, the consulting side has been pretty much running uh, organizational re- retreat style, long range planning sessions where an organization will say, let's look further ahead than we usually do. Let's create a new vision for ourselves and let's, you know, take a 10 year, 20 year, 30 year horizon. So yeah. in, in the nineties, uh, I'm, you know, I work primarily in the U S I've done some international work a fair amount over the years, but uh, healthcare was everybody in healthcare wanted to do a new vision, but the Clintons were in charge and they were all about healthcare reform. And so that, that was driving a lot of healthcare people, uh, virtually every uh, government agency, uh, cities, did a lot of work with cities, uh, large cities like Atlanta that wanted to have a, a vision for 2020. Right. Um, uh, resource, uh, natural resource organizations, uh, forest product companies, including Canadian ones. Um, um, and, and then the, some of the technology companies. Technology companies have been kind of an exception because they tend to be self-sufficient and to think of themselves as smarter than everybody else, which right. in some ways they are. And yeah. so they don't, they don't, they don't, they feel less of a need for outside kind of consulting. They say we're the futurists. Right. Um, uh, so um, then, then, then 2000 happened. Everybody had their 21st century vision. 9-11 happened. Everybody got very afraid of the future. Right. And so there was a, there was a dip, you know, there were, there were the economic downturns as well. Uh, and there was less interest. But in the last 10 years, since 2010 or so, there's been a very big uptick again in organizations it has been very much around energy, right? Um, uh, utility, electric utilities, um, oil, oil, literally oil, oil and gas associations, uh, and that's been quite fascinating. They they really want to hear about the future. Uh, and b- before we started the, uh, the the podcast recording, you and I were talking a little bit about oil and gas, and and in general, they're 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 very curious about this. They're they're aware. They're not yet willing necessarily to change anything that they're doing. Right. But they're certainly certainly aware of it. So um, in, in the last few years, it's been heavily around energy, uh, heavily around um, uh, transportation, right? Uh, transportation agencies. Uh, you know, what, what's what's the future of, uh, of driverless vehicles? Is that really going to change how transportation works? Um, and it affects some technology companies. Um, and then there is um, uh, retail. Uh, I've done, done a fair amount with retail because retail has faced so much change. So a lot of retail companies have said, come in and help us think about what's the future of consumer behavior and, and uh, can we have storefronts and, and so on. A little bit, but that's been true. Financial services, the same thing, same right. kinds of questions. Uh, the most, the most interesting one that I, that I worked on um, is uh, the, uh, the now embattled uh, Boeing company. Oh Yeah. Um, they had their hundredth anniversary. They'd been in business for a hundred years in 2016. Uh, and, uh, and I had done a fair, being in Seattle, I had done a fair amount of work with them over the years, you know, presentations to their management associations and some strategic planning facilitation and with various divisions and groups and so on. Anyway, uh, they, they said, let's look ahead a hundred years since it's our hundredth anniversary. And, um, they assigned a team to do that. The team contacted me and we put together a, a three day offsite. Uh, deep dive into what's the next hundred years in transportation, aerospace, space development, and so on. And we had a really exciting uh, session uh, imagining 
or really not so much imagining it as asking the question, you know, what, what will be some strategic opportunities over the next 100 years if you're an aerospace company? Right. Uh, and, and that, that was quite good. So, um, and that, but that, you know, that was around transportation, you know, they were interested in, in autonomy and 3d printing and, and additive manufacturing as, as they called it. And, and, you know, will it really change manufacturing? Will it really change vehicle design and so on and so forth? So, um, th- those are some of the changes. Number one, this, this high interest in the future followed by a dip in interest in the future. Now a re, a reemergence of, of an interest in a longer, somewhat longer term future, and then uh, uh, less about healthcare and government agencies, and now more about energy, more about uh, transportation, and more I would say about retail and consumer behavior. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. I see, I see exactly the same thing. Retail is actually uh, one that's interesting because you know uh, we, we've been measuring the health you know the fiscal health of a country based on like retail sales and how good but it's, it's completely wrong in in my mind but like suddenly you know this is this juggernaut it's consumerism it's capitalism you know yeah. and now you, you you look out to to like china and you know communism oh, doesn't yeah. communism you know it rarely exists in this world i mean you can go to laos or you can go to yeah. north korea right two very very different countries right. Right. And, and North Korea is like that, that, that incredibly scary sort of a case study. That yeah. Doing, right? yeah. Yeah. Are they, and are, are they really North Korea as an example, are they really communism or are they really just kind of family dynasty hypocrisies, right. you know, right. and that's, that's, that's probably really a little bit more of, of what they are. And it's one of the dangers in the world is, is you get these, these emerging, we call we call them national populism or nationalism movements, but they're really movements around consolidating power in the hands of a of a ruling family or a ruling set of families, and and um, making them or enabling them to just steal a lot of money, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've I've been chatting to a number of organisations. Um, in the past, just in the past four days, I've chatted to three different organisations. One was a, a, a quite well known design agency out of Berlin. Uh, and I, I turned to two different size consultancies. One's got 7,000 people globally, and another one is like a startup, like between three, 10 people, mm-hmm. just really starting off. And they're all tapping people like us on the shoulder and saying, oh, how can we consider dystopian futures to, to inspire our planning? Or how can, we, how can we build up our futures practices and whatever? Because so, suddenly they're seeing this as a huge opportunity, but we're rarely seeing any company in the world actually having you know a, a you know a chief futures officer i mean there, there are some people in the advertising industry and media's and, you know head of futures and things like that but it's very different than building out a foresight capability in an organization yeah, i don't yeah i agree i agree there there are a few and you you know of them of course it's ray kurzweil very famously at google um i knew dave evans when he was at cisco but then he left to, to do some entrepreneurial things in the Bay Area, and I don't think Cisco replaced him as the official futurist of the company. Right. Uh, there's Cheryl Conley at uh, at the Ford company. If you've never met Cheryl, yeah. if you could, you should. If you could ever get her on your podcast, you really should. She's fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've chatted uh, to yeah. a number of people. I, I actually, uh, for, I'm on Ford's mailing list, so they keep sending me. Are like, you? Yeah. Oh, if you want to talk about this mailing list, go ahead. Like, that's great. It's like, oh, can I interview Cheryl? They're like. Can we get back to you? Because it's like, again, yeah, you- no, she's very hard to get. I, I interviewed her. I, I did a video interview with her at a conference at which I was on the organized group and she'd come as a speaker. 
but I, it's been very hard to get her get her to uh, to have time to do anything since then because she's so busy. But when you've got embattled companies, I mean, Ford's embattled. I mean, it's it, it's it's lost its crown. Um, it could still be a, a significant player in the world, right? With with the right kinds of investments, but it it, it should it it should be. Although I I saw a really fascinating article. Uh, a guy wrote it two days ago in Forbes. Yeah. And you might have seen this on your Twitter feed because it's similar to mine, I think. And it was, he asked, who should Tesla buy? Should Tesla buy Ford or GM? <laughs> and he did, it, he did it partly tongue-in-cheek, but partly seriously. Like, right. you know, t- t- Tesla, Tesla sells every car they make at a premium price. Uh, and uh, they're finally at their kind of takeoff point as, as, a, as a company, I think. Yeah, I predict and, and Ford and GM, as we said, are are embattled. Yeah, I mean, I, I drive I drive a Chevy Bolt 100% electric, and the reason it's so good is that they outsourced all of the design and and the build of everything that's electric within it, and literally just threw a, a Chevy badge on it. You know, it, it, it's a completely different experience than any other uh, Chevrolet out there, and it, it's it's yeah. kind of interesting when when you. You get that perspective. It's amazing. I actually prefer it over like Tesla threes. Whatever. I actually made a prediction. I actually think that um, within eighteen months, Apple's going to buy Tesla. I think that's going to be pretty bullish if it happens. But if you look at, you know, one point three nine trillion dollar, uh, you know, market cap for Apple right now, um, where you know they're, they're, they're project titan internally, uh, you know, for self driving vehicles and whatever, it keeps uh, going off the rails and they laid off a couple of hundred people. I don't know. I, I, I'm going to put like a gentleman's bet of like a hundred dollars down. Well, and that, that, yeah. Okay. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule that out. I'd, I'd be a little bit surprised. Yeah. I'd be, uh, it obviously depends on, on the value and it totally depends on what Elon Musk wants to do. If, if would, you would rather turn his attention more to, to his space adventures and less to the car company. That's exactly what I think is going to happen. Anyway, we digress into yep. our predictions. Yep. So yeah, we, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here. And, and what's really interesting to me, I, I didn't know the depth of your background and how suddenly all the way from those early years at university. So you've literally been a futurist for almost your entire career, which is, which is kind of unheard of because a lot of people are repurposing or they've gone from like right. music. Like I think Leonard did, a bunch of future music and now it's into this. Right, right. That's why doesn't even call himself a futurist, but you know, under the Singularity University brand, you know, he's suddenly become that thing, but he was an inventor. And all these people are, are suddenly moving into this world. I mean, I come from a, a background of computers from the age of 10 years old, but artificial intelligence in the 90s mm-hmm. uh, and building out massive data infrastructure. And someone like throws the word futurist at me eight years ago and suddenly here I am having these conversations and uh, being part of some really interesting movements around the world. And I think that's what we're part of is like the people like you um, that, that sort of blaze, um, blaze the trail. And, and now, you know, as futurists, we're like these bounty hunters of truth. And it kind of seems like Twitter's brought us all together. And, and there's lots of sort of what is a futurist? What isn't a futurist? Are you progressive enough? Uh, and if you're not progressive enough, uh, are you like, you know, the old white guy that does it and, uh, where's these like these new futures and I love it I love the conversation I love everyone I mean this podcast is about talking to everyone and, and finding out what makes people tick really but I, I find it interesting everyone thinks about the future uh, we just do it but on steroids inviting people in to ask what if what if the world was different what if we were to take a different path 
you know, be creative, look a little further ahead, and maybe, you know, the world's going to be in a better place. Yeah, that, 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 that debate about how you get to be a futurist is, is, has been an ongoing one, actually. It has emerged and reemerged over the years that I've, that I've done this. Um, and there was that little kerfuffle on, on Twitter recently about who gets to be a futurist and who doesn't. And in uh, one of the last uh, meetings of the World Future Society, when it existed as a worldwide organization, I did a session uh, with Cindy Freeman, who's in my think tank group. And Cindy was the, at the time, the president of the Association of Professional Futurists and still is a faculty member at the University of Houston Futures Program. They call it the program in strategic foresight now. So we did this presentation and it was a, the title was The Future of Futurism. And my, uh, we sort of did a point counterpoint. Uh, she argued that, you know, you, you should have to get a credential to be a futurist. Yeah. And I argued that the goal of futurists ought to be to teach everybody to be a futurist and everybody yeah. who walks out of the room f- from working with you, Nicholas, should say, hey, I'm, I think I'm a futurist. Right. Uh, and, and so, but and it's, and it's two different perspectives. I, I, if, if somebody comes up to me and says, how do I become a futurist? Uh, my answer always is the very first thing you should consider is going to school. You know, go get an undergraduate degree, go get a graduate degree. There are a few places in the world where you could do that. Now, if that's not feasible, that's not realistic, then um, there's a set of reading you can do. You can hang out with people who are futurists. You can go to conventions and conferences. Uh, and there's ways to to begin to think more professionally. as futurists. I think there is sort of a contrast between those who are futurists just by, let's say, by mindset and those who have some professional background which you can acquire by, by practice, by, uh, by reading, by studying, by going to school, uh, and, and so on, and, and both have their place. Uh, but my, my, whole, my whole perspective for all these years I've done this is to, to say my goal is to get more people to think of themselves as a futurist, right. to, to adopt that, that longer-term perspective, um, to adopt a perspective of, of thinking about you know, future trends in terms of what's probable and what's possible and to think about vision in terms of what's, what's, what a preferred future is and how might we do something different this year to, to make a, a more positive future more likely, et cetera. Um, but but it's, a, it, it's an interesting debate. Again, my, my bias is let, let's turn more people into futurists rather than, than kind of create a walled garden and say, we're the futurists, you are not um, a futurist. Um, and and do more to to get organizations, cities, uh, and so on to to think longer term about the future. I think that ought to be goal, the goal. Yeah, and I think that's a really good way to wrap up the interview. I think that's what we do, um, and exactly yeah. the same thing. Build, build the community, have the conversations. I learn the most by spending. You know, I go to a conference, I speak there. Or I go in an organization, I I stick around. <laughs> I stick around. Yeah talk to a lot of people and the perspectives we, we can't read articles in Inc or Forbes or or Bloomberg right. and suddenly take to the stage with any level of credibility um, we have to have the conversations like we, we're having today but we need to have them with the people that don't necessarily agree with what we think should be the future and those counterpoints flexes our muscles around doubt and really plumbing the depths of every single preferred possible even mm-hmm. preposterous future that could exist so uh glenn I should add that we we should we should talk about the four the four p future the probable the possible the preferred and the preposterous i like that thank I you talk, i talk about preposterous a lot but that's a, a 
that's a separate, I think that's a separate interview and that's a separate And maybe we'll get that done uh, in a couple of months. But uh, I'd like to thank you very much, Glenn, uh, for, for spending your time today, joining us from uh, over there on the West Coast in Washington State and, and really just sharing some of your experiences. I, I think it's incredible perspectives on, uh, on how this has been built up over time. And for those people that do want to get into futurism, you know, be, be part of the conversation and, and, and go out there and have conferences and do meetups and, and start chatting to organizations in your organizations. Just get the like-minded people together and suddenly, you know, movements start happening. Thanks very much, Glenn. You're welcome.